been. Sorry about that. Forgot to click the button. Good morning. I'll try that again. Thank you all for saying good morning to me. So today we're going to continue on in our, uh, our, our book study. This is week two of Luke. We're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapter one, verses 26 through 38. Um, I hope you guys had a great week. Last week we started off this series by looking at the, the testimony or the story of Zechariah and God's uh, revelation of what he was going to do in his life through the birth of John the Baptist. How God was sending this new Elijah, this new prophet that Malachi prophesied about prior to that. Um, this man would be a voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Messiah. Uh, and we spent a significant amount of time last week, remember we talked about uh, this particular part of Luke is full of illusion, which is kind of uh, the, the Luke and the, the people, or God, pointing back to the things that God had said in the past. We're going to see some more of that today, but we looked uh, spent a lot of time looking at the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Specifically, those prophets talked about the sin that Israel was struggling with and God's next step, the next thing he was going to do in this uh, in his plan of redemption. So Luke begins this gospel by telling of the moment that God puts that plan back into action. Remember we talked about there was 400 years of silence where God didn't say anything. And then an angel shows up uh, while Zachariah's in the temple and reveals his plan. And today we're going to see another story of an angel showing up specifically about uh, or talking to Mary. Uh, we'll look at jo the, the same interaction with Joseph a little later on. But I, I want to remind us as we're, as we're digging in the, into this day, kind of what Luke's goal is in this. is he, he was a traveling companion of Saul. We talked about that, or Paul. Uh, and, and he heard all these stories. But he's like, man, I've got to know if this is true. So he goes out and he does all of these interviews and he compiles this work. Luke was not there for any of this stuff. He's after the fact. But he goes back and he, and he talks to the people that were there and he compiles this book. His goal was to know for himself if this is real or not. If this person of Jesus is really the Messiah, it's who the people say that he is. And that's our goal too. As we study this book of Luke, it's for us to look at God's word and say, who is the person of Jesus and what, we was, what is he about? We talked about, or Carrie talked about during uh, the introduction sermon on this book that one of the things that we have to allow the Holy Spirit to do is to take those preconceptions, those ideas that we have about who God is, about who Jesus is, and correct those things. Because whether we grew up in church or you didn't grow up in church, the reality is, is that we, we approach this book with ideas about who God is, right? And so our goal as we're studying this thing out is to look with fresh eyes, to let the Holy Spirit speak through us and to us as we're reading the Word to discover who the person and the, of Jesus is and what his mission was. So we're going to dive in this morning. It's important for us to keep that perspective. Um, we want to see these connections that, that God is making between what he's doing now and what he's done in the past because that's going to help us understand what this means for us today. This morning we're going to see Luke unfold what Mary was told about what was happening in her life and how God would use that um, that and use her in his plan of redemption. So if you would with me, open up to the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And uh, I want to remind you, just in case you've forgotten, I, I print an outline each week specifically for the kids. But if you want a copy of that, at the top of one, you can just do the outline if that's helpful for you. But also at the top of that, it has all the scriptures that we're going to use uh, throughout the week. And, and I, I shared this with you guys last week, and I'll, I'll just show you because um, my youngest was kind of making fun of me today, I think. But she's like, Dad, you got a lot of coloring going on in that book. Uh, it didn't come this way. I marked it up that way so that I could kind of keep track of where I am. But I also use these ribbons, and I use little sticky notes to help me flip to that stuff. Feel free to do that um, whenever you get here on Sunday mornings if you'd like to do it as well. So let's dive in. Chapter 1, verse 26. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And in this, in this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. And the angel left her. I was telling Carrie yesterday, um, it's been really refreshing these last couple of weeks to read these stories. Remember, we read all of this uh, the day or the Sunday after Christmas, um, but it's been really refreshing for me to read through these stories and to study them outside of the context of Christmas. Because it, it's for me, it's been a new experience. And we read these passages all the time, right? Specifically about the birth of Jesus at Christmas time, because that's what we're celebrating, so it's appropriate to do so. But it's been really, really fun for me to look at this and to study this out outside of that context, which is good. Um, we, we always read them at Christmas, but this morning I want us to, to look at something we don't necessarily always talk, always talk about at Christmas. I want us to look at some historical and cultural information that's going to kind of change the way we view what's happening in this. Not to change it completely, but just to give us some more information, some more insight into what God's doing in the life of Mary and in the life of, of his people, which is us. Okay, So in particular, we're going to discuss the nature of Mary and Joseph's relationships. This is important. Their, their marriage happened differently than marriage typically happens here in the United States. Okay? One of my commentaries said that betrothal in the ancient world was part of, uh, was part of a two-stage marriage process. The initial phase, the betrothal, involved a formal witnessed agreement to marry, um, not the person, but the act of marrying, and to give a, uh, the giving of a bridal price. Okay? So based on this passage, we see that, that Mary and Joseph are somewhere in that first year of marriage. Here in the United States, we would call that an engagement, right? When you, when you ask a woman to marry you, you give her a ring, and then there's a time period. I don't recommend a year. We'll talk about that at another time if you want to. That's a really long time. That's how long Bethany and I were engaged. But anyway, this is, this is how the, the, the marriage process works. And we know that they're in this portion because the, their marriage union had not yet been consummated. Okay, They're betrothed, or as, as we would say, they're engaged, but they're not yet married. Not only that, but Mary specifically was much younger than we commonly think. Look at uh, this, this next section that one of the commentators says. says, at this point, the bride legally became the groom's, right? Once this betrothal happened, this engagement, and he would be called her um, wife. About a year later, the actual marriage followed, and the husband took his wife home. In the first century, betrothal could not take place, uh, could take place starting at the age of 12, Mary's age is unstated, but it's during this betrothal stage that Gabriel breaks the news. Just pause right there for just a moment. Twelve. Okay, that's a little bit younger than what we 
typically see people get engaged today, right? It was normal and accepted for women to begin the betrothal and the marriage process as early as the age of 12. So scripture doesn't tell us how old Mary is, but we can pretty safely say that she was 12, 13, 14 years old. I don't know about you, but for most of my life, when I thought about Mary, when I'm thinking, when I'm picturing this event in my mind, I'm not picturing a junior high student, right? I'm picturing a woman in her early 20s, late 20s, somewhere in that ballpark, because that seems appropriate, right, for us culturally. Nope. (laughs) Mary was the same age as a junior high student. She was approximately the same age as my sons. I can, boys, I love you. I cannot imagine, right? You can't, yeah, Luke's giving me a thumbs up. He cannot imagine it either. This changes how we understand what Luke's telling us, doesn't it? At the end of today, we're going to talk about Mary's response and, and what she's being, to what she's being told. And I want us to keep in mind that she was probably about 13 years old. But this question came in my mind, and, and life group leaders, feel free to discuss this. In fact, I would encourage you to. But it made me ask myself the question, how am I preparing or teaching my kids to hear God's voice? And how does the scripture change our thoughts on how important it is to teach them early? The fact that God's doing this in the life of a junior high student. We'll talk more about the application for that in a few minutes, but I had to kind of mention that while that feeling was fresh. First thing I want us to look at today is some kind of the key markers in this story. The first thing I want us to see is that God sends an angel to tell Mary his plan, right? We see in Mary's story, um, it's very similar to what we read last week in Zechariah, and that's not a coincidence. Luke is intentionally writing about Zechariah's experience and then Mary's experience so that we'll naturally compare and contrast. I don't know if that happened for you this weekend when you read ahead, but for me, as I read Mary's story again, I thought, man, there's so much that's in common with what we read or what we learned about Zechariah's story. And so I want us to look at today at what's the same, right? God reveals his plans to both of them. He tells Zechariah what he's about to do, and he tells Mary what he's about to do. You're going to have a baby, right? And, and how does he do that? Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel is the one that comes and tells him that. Both of them are confused and afraid, and rightly so. Angels were not something that just popped up every day. Still aren't. There's this angel talking to me, right? And, and we've talked about before in the past how anytime we see a prophet or someone that's standing in the presence of God or in the presence of an angel, they're always their response is fear, right? Because their assumption is, I'm probably about to die because it's scary because this thing's happening to me. Both of them are reassured. The angel Gabriel tells them, don't be afraid. Both are presented a problem that naturally prevent that event from happening, right? For Zachariah, he says, have a baby. Do you know how old my wife is? Okay, and then with Mary, he says, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, "Um, hold on, there's a problem there. Hadn't been with a man before. Both are given a sign to show that this is really happening. For Zechariah, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but but he was um, chastised for his unbelief, and the angel made him mute until John was born. And then Mary is given a sign too. She's told about what's happening in Elizabeth's life. As you can see, there's a lot about these accounts that are super similar. And even though there's much that's similar, Luke very clearly shows that John and Jesus are not the same. One of my commentaries pointed out says, the mighty work God has done in John the Baptist's conception would be surpassed by an even greater miracle in the virginal conception of Jesus, God's son. 
The mighty work God foretold he would do through John the Baptist's ministry would be surpassed by an even greater work through his son's ministry. Whereas John would be great in the sight of the Lord, that was uh, chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus would be great without qualification. We see that in verse 32 and would be called the Son of God, and that's in verse 35. I want to point all of this out because I want us to see that God's not afraid to give details about what's going on. Specifically, I want you to understand that God is not afraid to give you details about what's going on in your life, about what he is doing in your life. However, we should also not be so naive to think that just because God is doing something similar in someone else's life, that he's doing the exact same thing in our lives. One of the biggest traps we fall into is we compare what God's doing in our life with what we believe God's doing in someone else's life. We share testimonies, and those are amazing But one of the traps that we can fall into is to say, well, God spoke to this person in this way, and if he's not speaking that way, then it's not God's voice, right? God works in all of our lives in similar ways, but often they're different. It's it's even more important for us to, to listen to God than it is to compare our lives with somebody else, right? There's something else important in this first section that we need to learn. Last week, we saw that Zachariah was punished for asking how it would happen. Yet Mary asked a very similar question, and Gabriel's response is totally different. Look at verses 34 and 35 again with me. It says, Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've not had sexual relations with a man? Remember, Zachariah said, how can this be? My wife is really old. That's my paraphrase. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son of God. So here we see Zechariah ask, how can this happen? And he's punished. And Mary says, how can this happen? And the angel explains it a little further. And a lot of the commentaries that I've read over this passage, they describe this as what they would call a mystery of God. It may be hard to, to reconcile why Zechariah was punished while Mary wasn't. I want to again just say, sometimes God works in our lives differently based on where we are. But for me, as I think about this, it doesn't seem that mysterious to me. Who was Zechariah? What did he do? He was a priest, right? He went, he spent his whole life learning all of the Old Testament with the purpose of serving in the temple and teaching other people the things. That's how that tradition was passed on. It was mostly orally. Some of it was written down. But when you went to church on Sunday mornings, they read from the scrolls. Like Zachariah's whole life revolved around and was devoted to knowing the person of God. Whereas here, who is Mary? She's a middle school girl right? Think about that, Kyle, when you're preaching on Wednesday nights, huh? Or teaching. And Bethany, he's a middle schooler. I think Zachariah was punished because he had enough knowledge and experience to know that God had done this kind of thing in the past, right? We looked at those stories last week of all the times that God did these miraculous birth stories in the lives of these women who were previously barren. Mary was a kid. She didn't have any context for what was happening to her. Sure, I'm confident that she went to church, that she was in a religious family, but she certainly had not been to seminary, right? She certainly didn't have the life experiences that Zachariah had. One of the things that, that we need to, there's a couple of takeaways for us for this. Number one is that I don't, I don't think for a second that anybody is too young or inexperienced for God to use them. I want to say that again. Don't think for a second that you are too young or inexperienced for God to speak to you. I'm talking to you, Amy, Joshua, Luke, Sarah, David, Trinella, Zane. 
Carolyn, Emmeline, y'all hear me? Jude, Zoe, Mark, there you are. I had a list, but I quit reading it. Started looking around the room. You are not too young for God to use you. Raise your hand if you're, if you're 11, 12, 13, or 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not too young for God to use you. God used Mary when she was about the same age that you are. Knowing Jesus and making him known is not something, kids that just had your hands in the air, knowing Jesus and making him known is not just something that the adults are supposed to be doing. This is all of us, right? You're part of this church. This is God's desire for you is for you to know him. The second thing is that God's intent is for, for us to draw on the things that we have previously learned about him to inform what he's doing right now. This is not restricted to the big stuff. The everyday interactions with God build up our faith and they reveal to us who Jesus is. All of God's activity, no matter how small we perceive it to be, is used by God to build up our faith, to build that foundation. God wants us to know who he is and he wants us to know what he's doing. He gives us details about that stuff. In addition to God speaking, he's, only, or he's going to place people and circumstances in your life that are going to help you to understand what he's doing. Look at verse 31 and 33 with me again. It says, now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of, of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. The second thing I want us to see today is that God explains who Jesus is and what he's about to do. We're going to read through that list again. But he's saying to Mary, you're going to have a baby. You're going to give him the name of Jesus. And then God tells her some very specific things. As, and, and as Mary shared her experiences, she's going to, as she grows up, as she's raising Jesus, she's going to remember these things and it's going to draw her mind to things that she's learning. When she shares this story with other people, those illusions are going to come to the service, and they're going to go, wait a minute, hold on, I know what that's talking about. Let's look at some of these things. First thing he says is, he will be great. If you remember in our previous passage, if you look, if you just look at the next page before in verse 15, um, whenever the angel was talking to Zachariah about Grabel, it says, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's still in his mother's room. Mother's room. So, so, ooh, that was fun. So, so the angel is telling Zechariah that he will be great in the sight of God. Gabriel qualifies John's greatness by saying, in the eyes of the Lord. Saying he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. In contrast, Gabriel says that Jesus will be great, and he gives no qualifier for that. John is great because of what he does, whereas Jesus is great because of who he is. He tells Mary, he will be great. And he'll be called the son of the most high. And this is another way of saying he's going to be the son of God. That means that, that and they're using a particular type of language here, but we're going to see in, in also if you look at verse 16 and 17 in chapter 1, that John will be a servant of the most high. And he's going to send people to God. Yet here we see Jesus being called the most high. And if you look, if you flip to Acts chapter 7 verse 48, I'm cheating because I got my stuff highlighted, but... Stephen, y'all remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr who preaches this great sermon and they stone him to death because they don't agree with what he's saying, the Pharisees that is. 
In verse 48 of that sermon in Acts chapter 7, he says, But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. So Stephen is referring to Jesus the same way that, that, that Gabriel, the angel, did. He says, the Son of the Most High. And Stephen is, is kicking that back to 1 Kings. You don't have to look that up. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. And he's quoting Solomon when he's building the temple, and he's talking about God being the Most High. The name Most High doesn't mean much to us, but to the original audience, when, when Gabriel's tearing, telling Mary he will be the Son of the Most High, that would have drawn people's attention. They would have known exactly what Gabriel was saying. Then he says he's going to sit on the throne of his father David. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, wait a minute, his dad's Joseph and he's not a king. What's going on here? God, if you, if you flip to 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one's a ribbon, hold on. Oh, that's Isaiah. We'll get there in a minute. Ha ha. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 13 and verse 16. Listen to what, what the prophet says. He says, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendants who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So what the angel is saying is is that Jesus is a direct descendant of David. And there was a prophecy that David would one day, his descendants would return to the throne. So Jesus is a descendant that God promised uh, to David and to Israel. And his Davidic heritage was already alluded to in verse 27 when he calls him a descendant of David. But we'll see that later in full detail when we go through the genealogy that Luke works on. Okay? Second, or the third thing he says is that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. We just heard a little bit about that as well. But if you look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. It says, Moses went up to the mountain of God. And the Lord called him to the mountain. And this is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain it to the Israelites. When, when Gabriel is saying he is going to rule over the house of Jacob forever, the house of Jacob is Israel. That's what he's referring to there. So again, illusion. Gabriel is saying he's going to be the most high. He's going to be great. He's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to rule over Israel. And his kingdom's going to have no end. We saw that just a minute ago in the passage from 2 Samuel. But also, this is a reference, another allusion to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. Let's look at that real quick. I know this is a lot of flipping, but I want you to see what God is doing through all this. This is not accidental language. He didn't say this stuff and go, huh, that was neat. I made a connection there. He's specifically making these connections. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. And then also Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. It says, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. 
So his kingdom's going to be forever. It's going to be over Israel. He's going to be great. And also, as we see in Daniel chapter 7, it's going to be over all the world eventually too, not just over Israel. What Gabriel is trying to make clear is that Jesus is not just another prophet. He's the one that the prophets have been talking about. He'll not be like anything this world has experienced before, that this Jesus that's about to be born is going to be the Messiah that the world has been waiting for. He's the one that's going to conquer sin and death, and by doing so, he's going to redeem all of God's people all over the world back to himself to restore the brokenness that we experience. That's a lot to take on all at once, right? That was a lot for us sitting here flipping around, right? You're kind of getting lost in a lot of those words. I want you to imagine being 13 and an angel saying all of that in quick succession to you. And you're going, wait, what? That's, you're going you're gonna to do what? And I'm pregnant? What? Hold on. That's a lot. I want to ask you this question. How would you respond in that situation? If you put yourself in that place, you're Mary, how do you respond to that? What's your typical response when God is speaking and asking you to do something that seems impossible or outrageous? I had that question written before the testimonies were shared this morning, by the way. To help Mary process all this, Gabriel shares with her a sign that God is doing all of this. Look at verse 35 through 37 again. It says, The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and in this, this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. And the angel left her. We're going to see what happens next week when Mary goes to confirm all this, when she goes to see Elizabeth. But even before that confirmation of, of the sign that she's given, look at how she responds. So, so Jesus, or Gabriel gives her this sign, this confirmation, but she hasn't even experienced that yet. We'll talk about that next week. And I want us to see that. Before she even gets the confirmation, what is her response? This is our third point for today, is that Mary believes what she is told and willingly offers herself. I can't get over the fact, and I can't impress it enough to you guys, how young she was. And I know my struggles in my life as a middle-aged man. Wow, that's weird to say. <laughs> the first time that's ever come out of my mouth. I know how hard it is for me when God speaks for me to do something that's a little bit outrageous, a little bit out of the norm, how I struggle with that. I remember how much I struggled with the way people thought about me when I was 13. And to put myself in those shoes and to consider for a moment how in the world she was able to respond in this way, it's, it's, it's God. It's God's activity in her life. Church, Luke makes it painfully obvious that there is nothing special about Mary. Now, I know there are some other denominations and religions that would have a lot of negative things for me to say to, to say to me after that statement. But I want you just to think about what Gabriel says to her and what he calls her. Because she's not that special. In most translations in verse 28, if you look at it, it says, Greetings, favored woman. But that's not really a great 
translation. If you go back and you look at the Greek word, that word that's translated as favor literally means grace bestowed. And what I want us to see, the reason I'm pointing that out is that Mary didn't do anything. God bestowed this upon her. God did this for her. You see, in our culture, in our minds, often we have this belief that is buried down and deep inside of us that in order for God to use us, we got to do something for God. We have to make ourselves a certain way. But Mary doesn't tell us that she did anything special. Luke doesn't tell us that she did anything special. Mary's just a 13-year-old, and God was like, hey, you, I'm going to do this in your life for you. Here's my point, is that God can work in your life with just as much power as he did in Mary's life. And I want just wrap your brain around that for a minute. That doesn't mean he's going to make you pregnant with a new Messiah. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the same power that, that worked in Mary's life, the power of God, the person of God, wants to work in your life as well. And it doesn't matter if you're 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, or you're 40, or you're 80. None of that matters. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter where you're from. God can speak to you and God can use you if you will allow him to. I've shared before with you guys my, my call to ministry. So I'm not going to go through that whole story, but I, I will remind you that God called me to ministry when I was just barely 15 years old. I was, it was between my, my um, freshman and sophomore year of high school. So not much older than Mary was in our story. But God called me to ministry, and I knew without a doubt that it was him speaking to me, and it forever altered the trajectory of my life. I was going to be an astronaut, and I was a cowboy, and I loved both of those things. Still a little bit of a cowboy. We're okay with that. We deal with it. But God changed my life because I knew it was him, and I knew that he spoke to me. And at 15, I was like, all right, I got a plan. Let's work the plan. Let's go forward. Not, and I want you to understand, I'm not the hero here. There was nothing special about me. I was a pretty rough kid. Not the ideal example of what a Christ follower should be. I tell our students all the time, don't try any tricks with me in, in youth ministry because I was the kid who was doing all the bad stuff. I know all the tricks. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Rachel's shaking her head. She probably remembers me saying that. Okay? Today's not about me. It's about seeing that God did something incredible in Mary's life. And it's understanding that God wants to work in your life the same way he works in Mary's. Not only did God work with that much power back then, but God wants you to know right now, today, that he wants to do something incredible in your life too. This is not a one-time thing where God worked in somebody's life back in the Bible and that stuff doesn't happen anymore. God's alive. He's the same God. He wants to do the same activity. I want to remind us that God's call for us is to be a cog in the whole redemption process. He has a role for all of us to play. It's going to look different. He's going to use us in different ways, but none of them are insignificant. All of them are necessary. Our experience is not going to be the same as Mary's, but if God is doing it, it is no less important. God's goal is for us to know him and to make him known. Jesus came and was born through Mary so that the world could be redeemed. And God accomplished that work through Jesus. But we are still in that process until he returns. And until he returns, he has a role for each of us to play in that process. God chose Mary to play an incredibly important role in the redemption of the world. And here's my question for myself.
Here's my question for you today. What is the role that God wants you to play in this redemption process? God wants to use you in this plan of redeeming the world. Adults, that could be being a Sunday school teacher, a volunteer on Wednesday night in next-gen ministry, being a deacon or an elder, or just being a good friend, a co-worker, someone's perceived enemy, but you're not really, and you're loving on them. The list could go on. Kids, all those that raised your hand a while ago, that could be by making new friends, by showing kindness with someone who isn't kind to you, helping your parents in their ministry or participating in worship like you did this morning up on the stage. There's literally no limit to what God can do through each of us if we will allow him to work in our lives. He can do something as crazy and outrageous as he did in Mary's life and your life. The only way that happens is if we're listening, if we're paying attention, if we're spending time with God. I titled this sermon, Emmanuel. That's a pretty typical title for a passage like this. But what I want to remind us is that word means God with us. And as believers, we believe, as followers of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit lives in us. And God is with us. And God wants to use us in this world to bring little pieces of his kingdom everywhere we go. To reveal to the world who he is. To make him known. Let God speak in your life. Pay attention so that you'll be able to see his activity and, and play your role to do your part and experience the joy. We're going we're gonna to read more about Mary as we move forward and we're going to see how much joy she experienced as the mother of Jesus, which is an honor beyond all honors. But God wants to use us in very similar ways if we'll allow him. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for, for Luke's work and this, this testimony of what you were doing in Mary's life. Father, I ask that as we kind of ruminate on this passage this week, as we think about what it means to be a Christ follower, to, to let you work in our lives, God, I ask that you would open up our minds to, to receive whatever it is that you have for us. God, that when you ask us to step out and do something that seems a little outrageous or, or against culture, God, that you would give us the, the wherewithal to just pursue you, to know you. God, I ask that you work in each of our lives this week, that as we wake up every morning, that you would give us a greater desire every day to know you, that you'd help us to spring out of the bed and be ready to, to approach the day with you. Jesus, I ask these things in your name.